We're doing a series on prayer, and uh, we're into week three. Just a quick recap. Uh, The first week we looked at Hannah. What happened with Hannah in 1 Samuel 1? What happened with Hannah? She had a baby. Is that all? She prayed. Okay, she prayed and had a baby. Anything more involved? Let's just look at it again, if you put the next slide up, please, Tom. Let's read this together. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, the high priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord's. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And Phil Stokes was here and he talked about praying in desperation. She was praying out of desperation. Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord. And we can be moved to prayer when we have a deep need, when we feel something in desperation. She persisted in prayer, verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord. And there's a lesson to us to persist in prayer and not just pay, pray, prayer, lip service, but to persist in prayer until the Lord hears and answers. She was largely on her own in it. Verse 13, her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. She was praying. She was in the temple and Eli did notice her, but she was on her own in this personal prayer of desperation. And it meant so much to her. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. And what was the result? We said earlier, she had a baby boy, a son called Samuel. And uh, if you hear a couple of weeks ago, Maya Yvonne got up and said that story resonated with us, that uh, we'd wanted children, it wasn't happening. And uh, not so much me, I must confess, but Yvonne was like Hannah, praying for a child. And we have... Samuel, and then we've got three others afterwards. And it's a challenge for me. Am I too casual, too passive about prayer? Would I be like Hannah? Would I give up too easily? Or would I cry out to the Lord and keep praying and be determined to see God answer? So that was week one, Hannah. Last week it was, for those of you here, Nehemiah, thank you, Nehemiah. What happened with Nehemiah? Well, let's read it. Let's read it. It's there already. Okay. Why don't you read it out together? They said to me, those who survive the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, 
Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And Nehemiah's in exile and he hears about the state of his own nation, the people of God, and they're in a bad state The walls of the city are broken down. Things are not going well. God's not being worshipped and followed. And the kingdom of God is not growing. And he really takes it to heart. What's the result? Jerusalem is restored and rebuilt. And he has a key part to play. And I found that a challenge to me. Have I got concern for our nation? Concern for the health and strength of the church? Am I taking it to heart in prayer and fasting like Nehemiah. So another person praying on their own, praying deeply, affected by God, but God moves powerfully through them. And for both Hannah and Nehemiah, it was a personal thing. It was a very personal prayer, but it had a massive impact on others as well. And sometimes we can be uh, really thinking about our own thing or something that bothers us or something we're wrestling with and we pray about it. And it seems to be just us on our own, just the thing that I'm worried about. But when God answers, it can have a massive impact on others as well. And Samuel, Hannah's son, became the great prophet of the Lord and leader of the nation for a season. And Nehemiah saw Jerusalem restored and the people of God moving forward. So our personal prayers can have much wider impact. Let's be concerned For others, let's be concerned for the kingdom of God. But even if we pray for something that's really personal on our hearts, it can have a wonderful impact in God's kingdom. And now week three, we've arrived in the book of Acts. Thank you, Tom. And it's Acts chapter 12. And we're looking more at corporate prayer, gathering together to pray. In the book of Acts, from Jesus ascending to heaven to this point in Acts chapter 12, we've seen Progress, I'll go back, Tom. Progress and persecution. Progress and persecution have been going on. And if you look at the first part of Acts, you see at Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel. How many responded? 3,000 people got saved. And a while later, a further 2,000 people started to follow Jesus. There are stories of people being healed, poor people being fed. The forerunner of the food bank was going on. Believers sharing their possessions with each other. Wonderful stories of God moving, of people sharing, of people being blessed and healed and the poor fed. We see the Ethiopian eunuch uh, becoming a believer and taking that message back into Africa. We see Saul of Tarsus meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road and the great persecutor, of the church turned round and became Paul the Apostle. We see Cornelius, a Gentile, not part of God's family of the Jews, coming to faith. And the word of God is spreading rapidly and radiating out from Jerusalem. It's a wonderful story of progress. But it's also a story of persecution. I think those two things go together. Sometimes we just want the, the highs, the great stuff happening, the breakthroughs. But they're also in the context of persecution and opposition and things uh, challenging us. And in that time, we see that Peter and John were arrested. 
and they were detained for a short while. And then we see Stephen becoming the first martyr of the church as he was stoned to death for his faith. And in Acts chapter 8, we see much of the church being scattered because of the persecution. And the story today, we're going to look and start off with another martyrdom. So there's wonderful progress in the kingdom of God. Let's be praying for more progress, the gospel going out to the nations around here, where the church seems to be in some places very much in decline in the West, but where the church is growing rapidly in India and China and other parts of the world. We want to see progress for the gospel, and we want to to pray in the face of opposition and persecution as well. So let's look at Acts chapter 12. And we won't read out the whole uh, thing, but let's read out these first five verses and let's read together. Together. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison. Four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Who were Jesus' inner circle? Peter, James, and John. Actually, I love Pete Alexin said that. There's a wonderful story. Uh, James Maxwell for our church uh, hadn't had a job for a while, and uh, Pete said he could get together and uh, do some interview coaching for him. And James got a job the next week, which was wonderful. And uh, Peter did it with John Copping. He used to be part of this church, and he was here last week. And Peter says, it's amazing when you get Peter, James, and John in a room together, what can happen? But that was the inner circle. And James, one of them, is beheaded here. We don't know where John is. And now Peter's arrested and put in prison. So the three key men that Jesus trained and had with him, one's been beheaded, James. Peter's in prison with threat of execution in a matter of days. And John's not around. So a real challenge of persecution on the church. Let's look a little bit more detail into the story. King Herod, is he the King Herod when Jesus was born? No, no. He's the grandson of that Herod the Great. And uh, the king, when Jesus was born, uh, obviously slaughtered all the boys under the age of two. So his granddad wasn't the nicest person. He was threatened about his rule, and that's one of the acts that he he did. And then this King Herod, who's actually Herod Agrippa I, his uncle was the king who had John the Baptist's head chopped off. So he's got form, this guy in the family. His grandfather slaughtered the innocents. His uncle beheaded John the Baptist, so not the nicest guy. This King Herod, Agrippa I, was educated in Rome. And who from Rome gave him the right to come and rule Israel? Any ideas? Roman emperors? Not Nero, Caligula. Anyone know anything about Caligula? 
So the person that's empowered him is Caligula. Okay, you can you can discuss your classics afterwards and have memories of what Caligula got up to. But you can imagine. So his sponsor was Caligula. His uncle had beheaded John the Baptist. His grandfather had slaughtered the innocents. Not a very nice man. And he wasn't Jewish. He was an Edomite, so the Jews didn't naturally like him. He wanted to ingratiate himself with them. And he got James arrested. He had James beheaded. And he thought, well, they like the people like that. Let's arrest Peter as well. And then Peter's plight, uh, if you read the story, I haven't put it all up there. He's arrested. And his best fr- one of his best friends has just been beheaded. But unlike Jesus, it's Passover time, but they don't rush through the trial overnight and execute him before Passover. So they have to put him in prison and wait for the festival to finish. And in a few days' time, the prospect is some kangaroo court, some show trial, he's definitely going to be executed within days of his arrest. And if you look at the story in Acts 12, Peter's held in maximum security. Uh, Normally, a significant prisoner will be locked up and be chained to a soldier. And if you look at it, you can read it there in Acts 12. Peter's guarded by a rotor of four squads of soldiers. And so at any one time at night, he's manacled to one on one side. He's manacled to another soldier on the other side. And two soldiers are guarding the door and the gates. And that's how he's trapped. So it's not a very promising situation that Peter finds himself in and then in verse 6 the verse after this it said it was the night before his trial and that trial would lead to certain execution it says Peter is fast asleep I just find that amazing you're gonna die tomorrow and you're fast asleep was it because he was so exhausted Or did he have a deep knowledge of God, deep experience of God, and was just so resting and trusting in God's grace and finding a peace in God that he could sleep through this night before uh, the day of his almost certain death? And perhaps Luke's two great heroes in the book of Acts, Peter, uh, more in the first half, and Paul in the second half, had such a relationship with Jesus that they could find peace in the worst storms. And so here, Peter's sleeping in this dreadful situation, and you read on, and Paul's in prison with Silas, and what are they doing when they're chained up? They're singing their hearts out in worship, chained up in a stinking prison, uh, expecting possible execution. It's wonderful. These men of God who could find the grace and peace of God in the darkest situations. And as we look to a wonderful answered prayer in a minute, let's think for ourselves, could I find a peace and a grace in God to help me in my darkest situations? Can I pray for my friends and people I know in church that they'll find that kind of grace and peace from God in their moments of trial? There are two kingdoms going on. And there's a contrast between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God represented by the church. In verse 5, it says, uh, Peter was kept in prison, but the church 
was earnestly praying to God for him. And he's kept in prison, he's trapped, he's about to be tried. What does the church do? The church gathers together and earnestly prays to God for him. Now, Peter himself tried one of the weapons of the world once, didn't he? When Jesus was being arrested, he got out his sword and chopped off an ear. What did Jesus say? Put it away. No more of that. Peter had tried the weapons of this world, and Jesus said, no more. The kingdom of this world has earthly power, prisons, soldiers, weapons, swords for beheading. The kingdom of God, us as a church, have one great weapon, and it's the weapon of prayer. And that's what they were using here on Peter's behalf. The church was earnestly praying for him. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish stronghold. The believers picked up the great weapon of prayer and really went for it in prayer. And I find that challenging. I don't know about you. I just think, how often do I worry about stuff? How often do I try and work things out myself, try and do my best, try and fix the situation? How often do I play scenarios through my mind and uh, work out worries and fears? How often do I feel despondent and overwhelmed by challenges in life? And how I need to pick up the great weapon of prayer and pray into the situation, believing God can overcome. And we need to do that. Not be passive, not let the world steamroller over us, not have a pity party, as Bev so often says, not be despondent, but rise up and take the sword and use it as a prayer weapon for the kingdom of God. And lots of people can play through Lord of the Rings or whatever your favorite thing is, Viking or whatever, and imagine yourself with that sword cutting through the enemy. And we need to be like that as Christians, not passively uh, suffering, not full of worry and fear, but picking up the weapon of prayer and doing that together. Sometimes it's very hard on our own. Hannah and Nehemiah prayed powerfully just on their own. But it can be so encouraging when we work together as the church in the kingdom of God. Prayer is one of our most powerful weapons. Are we using it? Prayer paves the way for God to move. Prayer makes the impossible possible. And that's what happened in this situation. Peter was imprisoned. He was chained. He was guarded. It was impossible. But prayer makes the impossible possible. Prayer is saying, I'm depending on God. I don't know about you. I'm, I like to kind of try and sort situations out in my own strength. Try and find a way through uh, myself, try and help someone else in their situation with whatever I can help with. And I need to learn to take it to the Lord in prayer and quickly turn to prayer. I don't want to be self-reliant. I know I need to be more God-dependent. And I'm learning that from passages like this. 
And I think praying corporately is powerful and encouraging. And when you gather together for prayer, it's so important. Am I prepared to get together with others and use that weapon of prayer and pray in agreement together? It says they were earnestly praying. Where do you think that word was? Luke wrote the book of Acts. He wrote Luke's gospel and Acts. Where was that word used before by Luke? They earnestly prayed or fervently prayed. You're absolutely right, Pat. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where that word was used before. The church, like Jesus, earnestly, passionately praying. I think the word literally means at full stretch. That was a real challenge to me. How much do I kind of pray a little bit? And when do I pray at full stretch? Really wanting the kingdom of God to come. Really wanting a breakthrough in a situation that touches my heart. And they were praying through the night. Uh, They gathered together. And verse 12, if you read on, uh, it says that many people had gathered. So Mary's house was the venue for the prayer meeting. They were praying through the night. Many of the believers gathered together in the house and they were praying earnestly and passionately like Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. They got that and they were doing that. And I was at a conference this week. Uh, Nicky Gumbel, many of you know, uh, leader of the Alpha Course, uh, says he thinks we're too much of a looking down generation. Uh, and he, he wasn't trying to do a kind of ageist thing. You know, I'm, I'm, he's older and he's looking up and all these young people are on their phones looking down. But he said all of us, our whole generation, are looking down. And I actually, I don't personally, I look at the phone all the time, but I don't personally navigate with it very much. I kind of know my way around Sydney by now. And sometimes I'm a bit perverse. You know, you see someone walking up to you like this. And I think, well, I could get out of the way, but they ought to be looking where they're going. So I just carry on walking straight towards them and seeing how close it is before they realize they're about to bump into me. And that's, that's one of my faults. Sorry about that. But Nicky Gumbel said, we're a looking down generation. And we need to discover the power of prayer and be a looking up generation. All ages, naught to 100, looking up to God much more using the weapon of prayer that he's given us and really going for it for the kingdom of God and seeing breakthroughs. And just to sum that up again, we're going to land fairly soon. Just put this next slide up. Prayer is one of our most powerful weapons. Prayer paves the way for God to move. Prayer makes the impossible possible. Prayer makes us God-dependent, not self-reliant. And praying corporately is powerful and encouraging. Let's discover those things in prayer. I thought of two stories, one from nearly three years ago, one a bit longer. Uh, Jenny Thomas obviously was pastor here for many, many years. And when she had sepsis and when she was, uh, as the consultant said, at death's door, we gathered together and prayed I don't know if you walk up and down Sydenham Road on a Saturday night. You probably don't do it that often, but some of you might do. You won't normally see here for good, full of people praying earnestly for someone. But that night, when Jenny was at death's door, people gathered to pray. And we took it on board. And it's wonderful that three years later, Jenny is fit and well. I look at Tina over there, who 
uh, saw her in intensive care, and Sheila, uh, who was one of the first of the first to see her at death's door in intensive care, and it's wonderful that we could be inspired to gather together and pray and see God move. I thought of another story as well from uh, some time ago. Had friends that lived in a big house that had been converted into four flats, and they were in the basement, and they were starting to get to know their neighbours. And they saw this couple in the top flat. This is down in, in East Dulwich by Goose Green. And uh, they were invited in when they got to know them. And they found out that they were full-on Satan worshippers in the top flat. They had an altar built and walls painted black and all the kind of witchcraft symbols and everything. So they thought, wow, this is interesting. Isn't it lovely to be here in the same house as full-on Satan worshippers? We're here with our two little daughters, age one and three. We just don't feel comfortable with this. And they asked the church to come round to their flat and pray. So we went round and a number of us gathered together and prayed for them and prayed about the situation. The next month, the neighbours moved out. And they'd got together. They just wanted us to, to gather and pray about their family and their situation. And we did that and we prayed for one evening and the people left. A little kind of rider to that. Five years later, I was at another church and Crystal Palace, I met a man, and I was talking to him, and he'd recently become a Christian, and asked him what his story was, how he'd come to faith. And he said the first thing that started it off uh, was five years ago. And he said, I wasn't a Christian, but I was the landlord of a flat, and I had these tenants in, and I was going to renew their lease for another year. And I just felt something say to me, no, don't renew the lease. And it was the very same flat. So he didn't know the Lord, but the Lord had spoken to him about moving those people on in answer to prayer for this family. There are situations we grapple with. There are things that we can't sort out ourselves. We can worry about it. We can agonize. But if we gather together to pray and seek the Lord and learn from this church, Uh, in in Acts chapter 12, then God can really work with us and through us. And then, uh, next slide, as we need to finish soon. Uh, I love the story as it unfolds. You'll have to read it for yourself. Uh, The night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, a light shone, and the angel said, quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrist. I love the irony Because Passover is about freedom. Passover is celebrating God freeing the Jews. And here, a Jew is chained up in prison. But God is a God of Passover. God is a God of anti-slavery. God is a God of freedom. And so Peter's released at Passover. I love the irony and I love that God's a God of freedom. And are they prayer professionals or apprentices? Next slide. Uh, We haven't got time to read it, uh, but if you know the story, uh, Peter's release, the doors open miraculously. And uh, when it's fully dawned on Peter what's happened, when he's fully awake, he goes to Mary's house 
And he, he's right. He finds the prayer meeting there. Mary was the mother of John Mark. And it's thought that John Mark wrote Mark's gospel. Uh, some speculate the house where the prayer meeting was may have been the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples. We don't know that for sure. It may have been where the 120 met in prayer at Pentecost. So it was a, it was a place, a large house that many people had gathered in. Maybe it was a significant place, and that's why Peter went. But it doesn't seem that they were really prayer professionals, praying confidently and knowing God was going to answer their prayers. Peter knocks at the door. None of them rush to the door, but the servant girl Rhoda does go. She recognizes Peter's voice, but she doesn't let him in. She goes back to them and said, it's Peter. And they say, you're mad, full of faith. She keeps on insisting, it is Peter, it is Peter. And they say, oh, no, it isn't. But it could be his guardian angel. It's kind of comic scene, isn't it? Uh, and meanwhile, Peter's knocking away at the door. And when they open the door, eventually, they're completely amazed. And Peter tells his story and goes into hiding. They weren't prayer professionals. They didn't believe Rhoda. They were completely amazed when God answers their prayers. By nature, they're just like me, not professionals. But they were prayerful, they were fervent, they did gather together for prayer. They didn't just depend on themselves, they appealed to God to make the impossible possible. And it's not so much, have I got enough faith? Is it down to me? No, it's down to God. And actually, faith is a gift from God. It's not, I'm a prayer professional. And I've got faith for this. But I want to be a humble person that realizes the power of prayer and says, I'm not going to depend on myself. I am going to look to God. I am going to pray. And I am going to gather together with others to pray. And I think we've got a lot to learn from the early church here. So let's pray. Let's be encouraged to pray. Tonight we usually provide an opportunity at Here for Good for prayer, but we're praying specifically for Food Bank tonight, so it's not at Here for Good. It's at St. Andrew's in Brockley, but there is a chance to pray even tonight. And you're going to find out more soon. There's a week of prayer coming up for us as a church. I think we need to engage with God together in prayer. I find my prayer life can kind of go like this when I'm on my own. Getting together with others in prayer really helps me pray. And this week of prayer coming up next month hopefully will inspire me and challenge me and encourage me. And I'd like everyone to join in with that. The song I think that really was touching our hearts earlier on is Faithful One. I don't know if you could finish with that, Dion, even if we sing it fairly quietly. I know we haven't got full band here, but that would be wonderful. Just to sing Faithful One, to celebrate the God who loves us and to be encouraged that we can move forward in God's purposes and particularly lay hold of prayer, that wonderful, powerful weapon, that deep communion with God that changes things and makes the impossible possible. Lord, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for what we've heard this morning. Lord, help us to get a fresh passion for prayer. Help us to take up the weapon you've given us and help us to rejoice in victories in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord. Amen.